0: Good to be here with you. Um, As Jeremy mentioned, I am a pastor of a church in San Diego. It's called Redeemer's Grace Church. And my church that I serve at, that I am shepherding over, has been praying for you and been praying for this opportunity. Uh, We are excited just to be partners in the gospel ministry. To be able to call one another brothers and sisters in Christ is no small feat and is certainly a treasure from our Lord. Take out your Bible and turn with me to the New Testament, to the book of Hebrews. To the book of Hebrews, and as you do, just wanted to exhort you and encourage you to continue to pray for your pastor. It's always uh, a lofty position to be here as I stand behind this pulpit to know that you have a faithful man of the Lord who's preaching and teaching to you God's Word faithfully day in and day out, exemplifying godliness. He draws strength from the Lord. I couldn't commend unto you even more as a church body to continue to pray for him, continue to pray for his time in the Word. I know that as a family member, I just receive a lot of strength and encouragement from him. And I know that as a larger body of Christ, that we can always be praying for Pastor Jeremy more and more. As he draws deeply from the wellspring of God's Word and drawing strength from it. Well, if you're there in the Bible, in Hebrews 2, this morning we'll be reading from verse 9 through 18. And it is just a privilege to come and to read and to, sh- and to proclaim God's word to you this morning. Hebrews 2, starting at verse 9. This is the reading of God's inspired and and inerrant word. May the spirit be delighted and rejoice to hear his word. May he take this word and seal it into our hearts, our minds. And may we be faithful to apply this truth into our lives in dependence and in humility. Hebrews 2, verse 9. And those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God have given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. I've entitled the sermon "The Perfect Savior, Jesus Christ." I've learned a couple things in my life here on this planet Earth, and i as an American, I've learned that as Americans we take two things very serious in our life here in America. We take our recreation very serious. We take it very serious. You can't go running without the right shoes right color of shoes, mind you. You can't go running without the right equipment, the right shorts, the right shirt, with the right advertisement on the shirt. You can't even go to the gym without taking the right selfie before you go to the gym to let all of your followers know, I'm going to the gym. Hashtag working out. I know that as an American, we take our recreation very, very seriously. You might be a basic baseball fan. You might be invited to your church to go play baseball or softball, but you can't go to the baseball or softball field with the right equipment, the right gear. We take our recreation very, very seriously. We also take, as an American, I've learned, take our heroes very, very seriously as well. You can't go anywhere in L.A. without at least proclaiming what team you believe in and what team has the greatest hope. Our team in Los Angeles has a numerous amount of teams. We have been blessed by capitalism to have not one team, but many teams you can't strike a conversation up in our churches or in your workplace without at least encroaching upon the topic of your sports our heroes are looming great outside of the Staples Center they have literally built a statue of athletes a merger of our recreation and our esteeming of heroes you go anywhere in LA and the question asks well, who do you think is best? I think Michael Jordan is the best player of basketball of all time. Oh, are you crazy? Kobe Bryant is the best player of basketball of all time. Are you crazy? Did you not just watch the NBA Finals? LeBron James is the best player. And so on and so on and so on. You and I, we all have heroes. We have heroes. We started out with heroes in our life. As children, we had heroes that we esteemed highly. Comic book characters, movies. As we grow older, we have heroes in our life. They are your parents, uncles, aunts. You have many, many heroes that have left a fingerprint in your life. As Americans, we love our heroes, and we love our heroes of a certain sort. We love the heroes that had nothing, and that by the very strength of their own will, they pulled themselves up by their own very bootstraps, as it were. You go on through the pages of history, and American history especially, if you've been part of the cultural musical phenomenon that is Hamilton, a musical in really surrounding itself around the life of Alexander Hamilton. If you don't know who Alexander Hamilton is, you just take out a $10 bill. boom, that's who he is. Many people have grown affectionate to these founding fathers because they embody the very core of our American essence. They started from nothing, and they built themselves alive, and they made a name for themselves, and they pulled themselves up by their very own strength. I am a fan of American history. And one of our presidents, popular by all omission, is Andrew Jackson. Again, you just open up your wallet, if you are inclined to, and you take out your $20 bill, and there is old whole degree right there. The man, the myth, the legend. Esteemed very highly by the popular consensus of America, everyone loved Andrew Jackson. Everyone in Washington, D.C. hated Andrew Jackson. He was the living embodiment of the common people. The man was rugged, self so starter he lost his family at a young age. He was homeless by all accounts. He enrolled into the military, made a name for himself, would eventually ascend into the highest position of government service, and he would become an American president. So staunch and so resilient against his enemies and opponents. There's a story about Andrew Jackson that has gone on into American history in which his wife... Precious to him, was accused of being a less than faithful wife. Andrew Jackson could not stand this type of indignity. Speaking ill of his wife, he challenged the man to a duel. This man, they met at a, at a, at a place, and they faced off into a duel. This is the time and place where duels were still happening and still common. They squared off, they counted to the ten, they faced each other, they fired the man. This opponent that slandered his wife, fired first, and fired at Andrew Jackson. Jackson, unwavering, to calm aim, lifted up his gun and fired back. Shot the man dead. Upon a closer examination, of the doctor examined Andrew Jackson and found that, in fact, he had been shot. Andrew Jackson was too stubborn to even flinch when he was shot. He did not want to give the appearance of weakness to his enemy and stood there. Calm and collected while he took deadly aim. See, these are the stories that we kind of rally around. These are the heroes that we like to surround ourselves with. These are the people that we like to imagine ourselves to be. But as a Christian this morning, as we come before God's Word and before God in the presence of God with God's people, isn't it amazing that our hero is unlike us? That our hero has not come from the inside pulling himself up by his own strength, but rather our hero has come from the outside coming in and putting on the very form of man and coming in as the incarnate God, perfectly God, perfectly man, one person in the name of Jesus. Walking this earth to be the triumphant hero to save sinners like you and I. Here in Hebrews 2, verse 9 through 18, there are six qualities of Jesus here that are like a cut in a diamond. Every cut in a diamond magnifies the very worth of its jewel, of its nature. For those that are single, you might have dabbled into looking into the four C's as it were, cut clarity. Something, something, something. I'm already married, so it doesn't really matter to me. But every cut in the diamond enhances the very jewel, enhances the sparkle, enhances with clarity the color, the preciousness of it. Here the writer, Hebrew, the proclaimer, the preacher, has given us six wonderful, wonderful characteristics that are meant to draw you in. To draw you into the loving embrace of the Savior. To welcome you in and to cry out in your desperation that this in fact, is my hero. This, in fact, is your hero as a believer. He is my hero. He is unlike any other man in this world, and yet very much he is like a man suffering, enduring, and knowing of the trials that we all endure and face in our lifetime. Someone that draws us in. Six characteristics. Let me give them to you right up front, knowing that we have a limited amount of time together, which is unfortunate, but I know the consternations and the constrictions, excuse me, of the pulpit ministry. Six, but let me give you really focusing in on three. I don't want to shortchange you this morning as you come expecting to hear God's word, the proclamation of God's word. Here are the six characteristics of Jesus He is our substitute. He is our substitute. Second, he is the pioneer of our salvation. He is the pioneer. Third, he sanctifies. Fourth, he's our brother. Fifth, he's our conqueror. And last, he's our sympathizer. Six emphatically, clear, warmly inviting characteristics of our Lord, of our hero, of our triumphant King, That draws us in into a deeper praise and worship. Our substitute, our pioneer, the sanctifier, our brother, our conqueror, and our sympathizer. Six characteristics. Substitute, pioneer, sanctifier, brother, conqueror, and sympathizer. I know that I, I repeat and I'm sensitive to that because I know that for many of you, you're note takers. And I know that your attitude is not that you want to be a church of professional note-takers, but that these notes will enhance your worship and your praise. Substitute, pioneer, sanctifier, brother, conqueror, and sympathizer. And while we have the time now, let's focus in on the very first call characteristic of our Lord, that He's our substitute. That He's our substitute. It is a little jarring when you step into Hebrews 2, verse 9-18, and just a little bit of context for you, that this is... Very much an expository sermon. This is a sermon that the writer of Hebrew has written to the church there, to Jewish Christians predominantly, but there are Gentiles obviously in the congregation. And as he's writing this letter to the church, you will notice though that this letter of Hebrews is all about Jesus Christ. It is all about the hero of our faith, the champion of our faith, the one that has rescued us from sin. You can't go anywhere in this letter without encountering the very glories of Christ. Everywhere you go, the writer is quick to point out that Christ is better, superior, greater than. You begin in Hebrews 1 and what stands out to you and to me at least in particular is that God has spoken finally in His Son Jesus Christ. He has spoken in many ages ago to prophets as I remember as Jeremy is going through Exodus and going in a little bit of the Old Testament God has spoken now in the New Testament in finality through His Son. We no longer have to look for the goosebumps. We no longer have to submit ourselves to the feelings. We no longer have to subject ourselves to whatever comes as a feeling or emotional experience. But we have with finality and confidence this precious word. And ultimately climaxing in verse 3. He has the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of nature. Again, goes up, talks about Christ in an exalting manner, continues to ascend itself with encouragement as a Christian that you are always reminded daily of the beautiful blessing of Christ. But you also know that when you go through Hebrews 2, it's not just encouragement, but it's also exhortation. In very many ways, I find myself aligning myself, obviously with God's Word, but with the writer here in Hebrews, because I'm all for the writer of Hebrews, because I think that the writer of Hebrews is a preacher at heart. The the letter of Hebrews reads like a sermon. Every time you encounter Christ, and every time you, you have the comforting arm of encouragement, you also have from the writer of Hebrews a swift kick in your rear about the exhortation that follows. Primarily resulting in the fact that if you love Jesus Christ, he is quick to point out, don't leave him. Don't depart from him. For every exhortation in Hebrews, there's a warning. He builds you up. And he peels away the blindness, bit by bit. Don't let go of Christ. Don't let go of the one that has saved you and rescued you. Don't be tempted to leave or to depart or even to ignore the wonderful grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ in your life daily. As I mentioned, the first characteristic is there found in verse 9 in chapter 2. Read with me in your Bible and we'll kind of a focus in on the second half of verse 9. As the writer writes and he says to the church, So that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Christ is our substitute. That is the most basic, foundational truth in the gospel that we have lived and died for. That Christ is our substitute. It very much addresses and answers the question of why did Christ have to come as a man? The writer of Hebrews here has been making special note that Jesus Christ for a little while was lower than angels. A little lower than angels so that he could suffer death on our behalf so that he could be the one that would pay for the penalty of sin now you know as you come to this church and as you read in your bible that sin ultimately leads to death Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is what? death the wages of sin is death and if you and I were left to our own resources we'd be left out to dry if we were left to our own resources we would be in an utter state of hopelessness and helplessness The simple truth is is that we could not save ourselves. There is no amount of human work that we can do that will rescue us from the very pit of our own sin. We are unable to save ourselves. We lack the resources to save ourselves. We lack the ability to save ourselves. The world says that you can save yourselves by doing good works. The world says that you can, you can save yourself by the amount of hours that you've logged in in doing good works. And that the more good works that you do, the lesser the penalty will be. Brothers and sisters, that's not the truth that the Bible proclaims. It is very much true that you will not be saved by good works. It is very true in the Bible that you have been saved by works in that God has performed the work on your behalf. God has done the deed that you could not do, would not do, but He has. Christ has come because He has met the very needs of our helplessness and hopelessness. God has a plan. He had a substitute to take the punishment of man, of you and I, And He died in our place. He died in your place. He died in my place. This was all part of God's plan. There is not a moment when you read through the pages of Scripture in the four gospel accounts that it's as if there was an accident. Oh, whoops. Didn't know that was going to happen. It wasn't as if this plan was just something humanly derived or created wasn't as if it ever spiraled out of God's control. Controversially enough, if you were to ask with the examining the pages of scripture, who killed Jesus? The answer is that God killed Jesus. The works of man as evil and wicked and, and desperate as they are. They put him on the cross in his shame and in humility. They nailed him. They killed, essentially killed him and left him there to suffer and die a gruesome and horrible death. And the reality, sobering as it is, is that God put his son on the cross. Christ humbled himself. And he came to earth. And he died in your place. He died in lieu of me. The very heart of redemption is that God becomes man in order to be man's substitute, to die. So that you and I could be free to live life in him. That this morning as a believer, as you gather with other Christians, the hallmark of our fellowship is not our ethnic, ethnic similarities, is not our shared passions of hobbies or recreation. What we gather together on a Sunday and what makes our time together unique and special is this very, very core truth that we have a common substitute. That we have a common Savior, a Savior that extends beyond all ethnic, social, economic barriers. That what draws us together as body of believers is not how we look, but the very significant fact that we all are now conformed into the very image of His Son. That why we gather together is to see and to encourage one another, as the writer of Hebrews will say later on, that we are gathered together as a church to encourage one another to love in the name of Christ for the glory of God and to stir one another up to do good works for His praise and for His glory. See, the very core of our faith and why we gather is because we recognized the finality of And the foolishness of our own works. And we cried out for a Savior. The very heart of that redemption is that God has come in man, in his Son Jesus Christ, to be the substitute. Why? Why did he have to suffer for us? Why did he have to go to the cross? Why did he have to die for us? It was grace, it was free. Loving kindness. What you didn't deserve, salvation, you received. And what you did deserve, which is death, you did not receive. That's grace. That is divine grace. And what prompts that grace is love. Unbounded, unbridled love that prompts Christ's gracious work on your behalf. It was necessary for God to send His Son to the cross to die for our sin. Because you know from the pages of Scripture that the wages of sin is death. There needs to be an atonement, a payment. And it came as a substitute. The second characteristic is not only is Christ our substitute, but He's also our pioneer. He's our pioneer. Read with me in your Bible, verse 10. It says this, For it was fitting that He for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Two key words really stand out there in verse 10. Founder and perfect. And really, what I'm trying to do in the sermon, the proclamation of God's word, is just trying to give you enough of 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 a hanger just kind of hang your hat on these hangers so that you know that when you go back in the pages of Scripture, it'll generate the right truth in your heart and your mind, and so you know as you reflect back in the pages of Scripture, this is the wonderful Savior and the Lord that we have, that He is our pioneer, or the word that is used there in verse 10 is founder. This is very much the truth that it was in God's plan, in God's infinite wisdom to send His Son to suffer on the cross and to die on the cross grant for our salvation. It's a consistent plan of God fulfilling and exemplifying the wisdom of the Father above. When you look at the cross, it's the masterpiece of His wisdom. God solved the problem that no human could solve. God solved the problem no angel could solve. God solved the problem that only He could solve that was consistent with His divine attributes and characteristics. God is infinitely holy divinely holy, He is just, and He needed, in order to show His justice, His holiness, His hatred for sin, the cross became very much the exemplifying wisdom of God. To the Romans and to the Jews, it exemplified shame, sorrow. To God and to Christians, it becomes the sign and symbol of hope. On the cross... It was where God married really much and exemplified His hatred of sin and His extreme love for people. Christ suffered a humiliating death for your sake, for your salvation. And His suffering on the cross is very much in accordance with His loving nature and His gracious, gracious nature. Jesus had to become a man. He had to suffer. He had to die in order to be the perfect provider of salvation. The founder. The leader. There in verse 10, as the writer exhorts the congregation, the church, he uses that word for founder. The word is similar to the word that we would use today of pioneer. Leader. A pioneer or leader is someone that is at the front leading. A pioneer is someone that took the lead in fur the wagon and looked at the road. Directed where the wagons would go in the early early settlements. He was the one who was a trailblazer. That's another uh, another word that we would associate with pioneer or leader. He sets the example. Christ is always before us. He is our perfect leader and our perfect example. Christ is the founder, the pioneer, the leader. This morning, for example, say for example you, you enjoy hiking. I don't. But say, because you were nice and you were gracious and you were like, Hey, you know, Chris, why don't you come with us after service? Let's go for like a 10-mile a, a hike in the beautiful mountains up here. Okay. I'm your guest and I don't want to turn down such a gracious invitation. So let's go for a hike. I'll bring the tie You bring the water. Let's go for this 10-mile hike. And we go on this hike. And on a hike, we come across this ravine, this great gap. Well, you've been on this hike before many, many times. I'm a newbie. I don't like hiking. This is my first time hiking with you. You come across this ravine, and in this ravine, there's a great big tree that's fallen over. It very much provides that bridge that we need to get from point A to point B. Well, we'll come across this gap, this ravine, we'll come across this tree that I think looks kind of suspicious, but you know that will endure our weight, even my weight. And we come across this, and you come as the leader, you go across this wood-fallen tree bridge, come across it, you go to the other side, and you look back, and you realize, I haven't followed you. I was born a night, but I wasn't born last night. I wanted to see if you were going to make it across that bridge. Having seen that you look back, oh, Chris is still on the other side. You go across this wooden, fallen tree. You extend your hand, and you say, come on, Chris. Get a little support our way. I've been across this, this fallen tree many times. So I'll take your hand, and then we go across make it to the other side. That's very much the imagery here. Christ is the pioneer, the leader. Christ is the leader. He's gone ahead. He is the perfect example. Christ, in fact, has been the perfect leader the perfect example because he set the perfect standard of perfect obedience. If you read a little bit later on in Hebrews 5, verse 8, it says this, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. It's very much this type of perfection. This is a common word that you'll find in the book of Hebrews. Perfect. When we read perfect, we think of imperfection. We think of something flawed. The full idea of perfect here is not that type of perfection that you and I would think of. Perfection here has this idea of fulfillment, of completion. What the writer is saying there in verse 10 is that Christ has not lacked anything. Christ was not imperfect like he was flawed, like you and I may be flawed. No, no, no. What the writer here is saying is that when he, Christ the founder, the pioneer of our salvation, being perfected through suffering, is that it came at the fulfillment of. Again, this is the plan of God. That Christ would Suffer that it would become the perfect pattern for us, that He set the pattern for us through suffering. Imagine if Christ never suffered. Then imagine that because it would make it difficult for you to relate to the Savior. What would Christ ever know of suffering? What would Christ ever know of being alone? What Having been abandoned by friends or family? What would Christ ever know about my trials or my tribulations or my deep pit of despair? This Savior doesn't know anything about my life. You see, this is all important with God's plan there in verse 10. As the founder, pioneer, and perfected through suffering, he is the fulfilling of or the fulfillment of God's plan. Christ, in fact, would suffer and would die. Because He draws you into Him. Consider the words of the Apostle Peter as he writes to the scattered churches of scattered about Asia who were suffering, being persecuted, who were being put to death as Christians. He writes these things in chapter 2, verse 21. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might Follow his steps. Brothers and sisters, you do not have an impersonal savior. You do not have an impersonal God who does not love you and care for you, know you intimately. The page of the scripture says that he has intimately formed you and fashioned you in the womb as it were. That he has known of you from eternity past. He has and very much has a very indelible mark in your life whether you know it or not. And here the writer Peter in 1 Peter 2.21 says that this is the reason why he left him, you an example so that you, you might follow in his steps. As a visitor, I am saddened to hear of the death of someone that you may know in this congregation. And the writer here uses death as a very apropos example. Death is a fearful and most anxious reality that we all face. I may be afraid of certain bugs, but being the man of the home, you just got to do it. Got to kill the spiders. But every man or woman and child will always come before this great sobering reality of death. Death is sobering by its very nature. Death produces the most anxiousness in your heart and a dreadful reality to some. It's terrifying because death, you can't rely on anyone else. Death strips away all the illusions of this life. It strips away all the things that sometimes we get so caught up in. And it soberly reminds us about this life and the life to come. It reminds us of the eternity that we had. Death reminds us that we can't take this step with anyone else, but that we take it alone. Death is sobering by its very nature. And death brings to our very conscience the realities of life, death, eternity, heaven, hell, and questions are asked and answers need to be given in God's word. The world is ultimately asking, can you cheat death? Can you escape death? And the Bible says, yes, because someone has done so and his name is Jesus well you're thinking along and you're thinking quite honestly well if someone has escaped death someone has cheated death and that person is Jesus you're thinking about yourself rightly in a sense did he leave a way for me? did he leave the door open for me? and the Bible says yes he left a way open for you Christ would emphatically tell his disciples In John's Gospel, in John 14, verse 19. That because I live, you shall live also. All you have to do is put your hand in His hand. And He will lead you from one side of death onto the other. That He has gone as the perfect example. You will read on later on in Hebrews 3 and 4. As Christ is the High Priest, He has ascended onto the right Um, right hand of God and he awaits for the very command of God to return and to rescue his believers Christ is, as you will explain later in Hebrews 3 the high priest who can sympathize with you, who understands your suffering, who has not left you or departed from you but in fact has been the pioneer, the founder the trailblazer that has gone forward ahead, ministering before to God proclaiming your innocence to him interceding on your behalf. And he has gone the full distance ahead so that you would not be alone. That you would no longer have to be gripped with the fear of death. That you might proclaim like Paul did in Corinthian letters that death merely has that momentarily sting and he refers to believers as have gone asleep the day is coming in which the Lord will return and resurrect and redeem His people to experience the eternal glories of spending with God the Father in Heaven forever and ever and ever and you will no longer fear that death, you will no longer fear the pain because you will be at that time given a glorified body no longer suffering the indignation, the limitations of our human body. This is why Paul will write, and he can say with wholehearted confidence that the outward is expiring, as it were, but the inward is being renewed daily. Christ is the leader, the trailblazer for death and resurrection. Hear the words of John 11 verse 25 Jesus said to her I am the resurrection and the life whoever believes in me though he die yet he shall live and everyone who lives believes in me shall never die do you believe in this? do you believe in this? God has made Christ a little lower than angels so that he could come down to be our example. To, bring, to be our leader. And to bring us to the Father in Heaven. This draws us to Him, does it not? This, this draws us to the very comfort and to the very truth of Christ. This is a place where we can gather as Christians that we may find rest and peace. This is a place in which we may find that we no longer have to whip ourselves, as it were, for every sin. Because we know for certainty that in Christ, all of our sins have been paid for. That He has satisfactorily atoned for all of our transgressions, both past, present, and future. That the blood of Jesus Christ, as it were, because you know in the pages of Scripture that if you sin, there needs to be atonement, there needs to be blood shed. And so in doing so, Christ Himself has shed His blood and finally have atoned for sin. Has made the way secure for each and every one of us who believe in Christ. That you no longer need to spiritually whip yourselves on the back. Feeling as if there is no amount of good work that I could ever do to ascend before the Holy God. Because Christ himself has done all of that. Not only has He paid in full the transgression of sin, which is death, but He also sets for you a perfect example of obedience. And this is heartwarming to us. This is heartwarming to us. Because the third quality is that Christ is our sanctifier. He's our sanctifier. Not only has Christ been the substitute, not only has Christ been and is very much the pioneer of our salvation, the leader of our salvation, but because He's the perfect example, the perfect man, God-man that has walked on this earth and been the example of perfect obedience, that means, that gives us hope, because He's the great sanctifier. Sanctified, and cognates of sanctified. It's a kind of a big word, and it really means just to be set apart. And primarily here in the Bible, when it says sanctify or sanctify, God has set you apart to be holy for holiness sake. He hasn't called you to a life of a monastery. He hasn't called you to be monks or nuns. He's called you in this world to live a life of holiness, to live a life of demonstrating and being light and salt in this world. So that others might see clearly what it means to be a Christian, to be light and salt. And that they might be aware and alert as to why their life is not marked by holiness someone is in light and someone is in dark how will you know you're in darkness unless you flick on the light switch And unless you know that and here Christ is our sanctifier he makes us holy if you are a Christian this morning and you profess to believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you trust in him and you continually depend upon him and acknowledge him in all your ways and all your steps these are just comforting words that are drawn into our hearts Philippians 1.6 Paul writes and he says, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God has started a work in you, a work of holiness in you. The moment you became a Christian, the moment you pledge your fidelity to Christ and you acknowledge Him as Lord and Savior, the moment you transferred your trust away from yourself and onto Him and onto His death and resurrection, oh, good work began in your life, brothers and sisters. Not only a feeling of peace, not only a feeling of joy, not only of knowing that your sins have been atoned for, but also a work of holiness in your life. That's hard, though, to accept at times, is it not? Because from our experience and from our perspective, it's hard to imagine ourselves as holy. It's really, really hard for us to imagine ourselves as holy. Sin is too much with us. Look at the words that the writer makes in verses 11 through 13. These brings words of comfort and truth to our hearts. For he who sanctifies, there's that word, and those who are sanctified, that's us, all have one origin. Holiness. Our origin is holiness. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise, which we have done, and which we continue to do as we gather on the Lord's day, and even in our homes. And again, verse 12, or excuse me, verse 13, I will put my trust in him, and again, behold, I and the children God has given me. sanctifier and sanctified merged as one with <clears throat> commonality of holiness. I just like you at times and in days and moments in our practice sometimes we feel too far away from holiness don't we? sometimes in whatever season of life that you may be in, you're grappling with a sin, you're wrestling with a sin, and you're trying to put it to death. You're trying to kill that sin, whatever it may be, anger, lust, covetousness, greed, so on, so on, so forth, and you're trying to put that to death, and in your practice, in your daily living, sometimes you just feel too, too far. Too far from holiness. God in His infinite mercy Blessings unto you that you might gather together as a church, receive prayer from brothers and sisters who have loved the Lord with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, continue to be not just a sounding board, but a brother or sister in arms next to you to encourage you to love and to stir you up for good deeds continue to rely upon the great and sovereign truth of the Lord who the Spirit has been granted unto you as a helper to exhort you, to remind you that it is not my place as pastor to acknowledge whether or not it's not my goal to, to, to humanly build you up in a manner that says that you are, you are not saved. What the Spirit does is very clear in the Bible is to affirm salvation. I can only affirm what the Bible has affirmed in your life. I can only testify what fruits are being born in your life as a Christian. I am not the gatekeeper. I am not the one that stands and says Christian, not Christian. Christian, not Christian. I am not in charge of that. I have been by God's mercy and grace, been given this powerful, powerful truth of God's Word, which tells us of the standard in which we are called to live in obedience to God for His glory. The work of the Holy Spirit in your life is to continually affirm and to build you up and to transform you. It is true. There are days that we do feel too far from holy. There are moments in which we feel too tainted and too unclean. The Bible teaches us that you are perfectly holy in Christ. In your new nature, you are perfectly holy. Just saying it brings you a sense of relief. Just saying it brings a sense of peace and joy in your life. I, me, I'm perfectly holy? This sinner, this unregenerate individual, this man that can be made holy? Wow. I am holy this morning before God because Christ has died on the cross for my sin. And this morning if you are a Christian you are in his son and the righteousness of Christ is now draped and clothed over you. It's like a snuggie that you just can't relieve. It envelops you and it makes you a new person this morning. That when God looks at you he looks at you and he sees the perfect righteousness of his son. You are holy this morning. And it certainly is true that we don't act holy at times. But that doesn't mean that as a believer, you're not a child. A child doesn't always act like their father. Or they don't always please their father. But that child is still that child and you're still a father. My daughters, I have two daughters who are not here with me today. They're in San Diego. But they're still my daughters even when they disobey me. I remember one time I was, I was disciplining my youngest And, you know, she was just in tears, and we're just trying to reconcile, bring forgiveness, and bring love and mercy into the home. And she, in tears, was just sniffling, and she's just saying, Daddy, do you still love me? Of course I still love you! You Even when I disobey? Yes! Despite the fact that you disobey, you're still my daughter. You know, my daughter's Evie. God, in fact, loves us even when we still disobey we've made the greatest, greatest transgression. And my wife always tells me, Chris, you use too many big words with our daughters. That's okay, they'll catch up. You You have transgressed against God yourself like Daddy has before. I cried out for a Savior in Jesus. And even now as He's my Lord and Savior, even when I don't obey perfectly, God is good to rebuke me and discipline me. I know He still loves me. Because I was a child. Hebrews 10.10 says this, and that you have been sanctified. And by that, we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. You are made holy through His sacrifice. You have become set apart. Christ has removed the possibility of that what we call positional sinfulness you are now in good standing with the Lord. This is what they call the great exchange. You have exchanged your debt of sin and all the payment that was owed to God and in exchange God has given you the freedom in Christ through His work and obedience. A clear ledger. You owed a debt that was astronomical. There are no amount of numbers that we have in our English system that can ever atone for the debt, the debt that you owe to God. And in doing so Christ has been as our substitute. you exist before the Lord as pure righteous because Christ's righteousness covers you. There in Hebrews two, eleven through 13 He even calls you brothers because you share in His righteousness. The reason why we call one another brothers and sisters is because not only do we have a common Savior and Lord, it's because we share a common righteousness. He tells you that you are now united with the Sanctifier and the Sanctified. You become one for the Father's glory and goodness. The Sanctifier, Jesus, isn't ashamed to call you his brother. Just so think about that. I have a sister, and I know the pecking order of my family. My sister, all by all accounts she is a godly woman who has known the Lord she speaks the language of, our, of my family which is Mandarin I could not make it in Taiwan or China or anywhere that speaks Mandarin I have the equivalency of a kindergartner my sister is reputable respectful she has a sharp wit and she's always quick to point out to me in public places Chris don't embarrass me <laughs> Psst, what? do you not know your brother Yes. Don't embarrass me. I go two steps further. My wife pulls me aside. Chris, don't embarrass your sister. <laughs> what is this? I'm a bastard. I'm reputable. Are you kidding me? No, you're right. I'm probably going to embarrass her. I am proud to call my sister a sister. And I know that she's proud to call me a brother most of the time. Think about this. Jesus is willing to call you a brother. God is willing to call you a child. He is not ashamed of you, and yet why is it that we are ashamed of Him in proclaiming who He is at our work, at our place of coffee drinking? Why is it that we're ashamed of proclaiming what God has done for us a remarkable testimony of his love and mercy and grace and paying for our sin. Why is it that when God is not ashamed to call me a brother or you a brother or you a sister and God the Father is able to call you a child of God, why is it that we grow meek? May I offer you encouragement for Monday. When you go to work or when you go get your coffee or whenever you talk to anyone and they ask you what you did on the weekend, let me encourage you for this to say. I went to church. And I've heard God's word being proclaimed. It was a wonderful time. It was exciting, thrilling. It was a lot of yelling and a lot of screaming. It was a wonderful time of just gathering together and experiencing the love of God in Christ. You don't have to go verbatim. You choose whatever your own words you want to say. But why is it that when people ask us at work what we did over the weekend, and we shy away from it? What'd you do over on Sunday? Ah, nothing. Are you kidding me? Coming to church and experiencing fellowship together is nothing? No, it's everything. It's everything. He has called us as heirs. He has called us as children. He has made us righteous. And He makes us holy. And He makes us in our relationship to one another as brothers and sisters, one marked by holiness. You are not born, as it were, into this family. No, you're reborn into this family. You and I are called to battle against sin. And our new nature now is one of holiness. This is why you know what is wrong. This is why the Holy Spirit in your life blares the red alarms into your life, into your mind, into your own conscience. This is why you can't leave this morning in church and you commit some type of wrong or sin, lying, stealing, covetousness, greed, any of those things. You can't leave this morning because your conscience is bricked. mark of a mature Christian is the savoring of holiness. This is why as you get older and older in maturity, this is why the sin becomes even more destructive in your life. The one or two or whatever it may be, it just wrecks in your life. This is why Paul proclaimed to the churches, I am the most egregious of all sinners. I am the worst. You don't need to tell me who the worst sinner is. I just look at myself in the mirror, I know. caramel in your mouth you just want to make it last and last forever and ever Christ is your brother because of a common righteousness and common faith in the Father this is why if you're a Christian this morning you're called to walk by faith this is why as a Christian you're called to submit yourselves to God this is why this morning as a Christian you're called to live in total dependence on Him because that's how Christ walked and that's how we should walk as well. This morning, if you're not a Christian, I don't want to use the word invite because an invitation you can casually dismiss. Like if I invite you to my birthday party and you say I can't make it, that's fine, we're still friends. Maybe. This is a summons. If you're not a Christian this morning, and may all the glory go to God for coming into church. If you're not a Christian this morning, please hear the summons of God's word to you this morning. You are summoned before the holy God to stand before Him. This is not a casual invitation that you can just easily dismiss without receiving a punishment. This is a summons that the Holy God has entreated you this morning to hear. That you now stand before Him. That He has exposed your sins to you. That you have come into this church, hopefully because of desperation. one hand, because you are nice to the friend that invited you. But ultimately, as you stand before God, before His Holy Word, it strips away all of the imaginary things of this life. And now you are summoned before the Holy God to stand. And now you are given a choice to make. Will you respond in obedience to Him? Depending upon Him. Have you come this morning realizing that you are in desperate need? I try living my life by myself, on my own terms, by my own conduct, by my own standard of righteousness. And I hear the summons of God's word says that as I come before Him, He has done the great work already for me. And so my only response in faithfulness and obedience to Him is to cry out in my desperation... in the book of Romans that those who profess Christ with their lips as Lord and Savior are in fact indeed today saved. Oh, Visitor friend, if you're you're not a believer, the most frightful words in the pages of the Bible is tomorrow. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. The most hopeful words are today. Today is the day that you can make a choice you can make a choice that will have ramifications for your family for your husband or your wife for your children you can make a choice today that will have ramifications for yourself for all of eternity that you can stand before the holy God hearing the words of this summons and you can say yes trust in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ who has died for my sins and been resurrected in triumph over death and sin that he is in fact my leader, my Lord and my love and I'll walk this earth serving him for his glory and for his name forever and ever will you make that choice today if you haven't and you have questions Please, feel free to come by and approach me. Feel free to talk to Jeremy. Let us explain even more the glorious good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you are a believer this morning, well, all the blessings and all the praise goes to God. May I encourage you and exhort you, walk by faith, live by faith, and live in total dependence on Him. By His strength and by His mercies alone. And by his grace alone. Please pray with me. Father, this morning, as we read the glorious pages of Scripture, knowing that the Word of the Lord is not just some kind of magical book. But that with the word and with your spirit, we are adequately and sufficiently equipped for a life now, of living righteously for your glory and for your name. Father, we thank you for sending your son Christ to walk on this earth, to be the incarnate God, to have experienced very much the physical limitations that we all face at times. To experience the sufferings and even the pain of death so that we might not have to. Father, your Son has been the perfect example, example and leader for us in this life. And surely for the life to come. Help us, Father, to put your will, your word, your passions ahead of our own desires. Help us to conform even our woeful and limited desires. To conform them into yours. Help us, Father, to live into total dependence upon you and upon you alone enliven our time of fellowship enliven our time of reading your word enliven our time of prayer enliven the very foundation of our spiritual growth to always have the right heart before you Father alone we could not do this but in your infinite love and mercy and justice you have sent your son so that we would not be alone and that we would not have to go it by our own strength. May all the mercy be extended to my brothers and sisters this morning. We pray trusting, knowing full well that the Holy Spirit pricks our own conscience, awakens our own desire and hunger for your word and for your Son, Jesus Christ, and even convicts us of our own sin. Knowing full well that we have a high priest that stands awaiting and interceding on our behalf, Father, we may humble ourselves to come before this mighty throne of grace and to receive forgiveness of sin and to emerge this morning as men and women joyfully proclaiming the good news standing in victory because of the great and satisfactory work of Jesus Christ who has died and been resurrected in hope and in joy. Give strength and mercy to the weak this morning humble the proud enlarge our capacity to know more of you embolden our spirit to claim the mighty mighty works of the son may all the glory may all the praise go to you this morning father and may we be overwhelmed and delighted I pray these things in your son's name amen